Episode 330, What is Going On Over at Health Systems? Today, I speak with John Marchica, CEO at Darwin Research Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today on the podcast, I'm interviewing John Marchica, who is the CEO at Darwin Research Group. Starting last year, in the middle of the worst of the COVID pandemic, Darwin Research Group conducted a study about what was going on at health systems or integrated delivery networks, IDNs, and they've updated it every quarter since then. The goal was to try to stay on top of the effects of COVID-19 on care management and the business of care delivery. I loved having this opportunity to quiz John about what health systems are saying about how they are doing and what they are doing, both strategically and reactively coming out of the pandemic and in response to the pandemic. Now, this is a half-hour conversation about an extensive research report. So we're kind of aggregating all of the health systems in one big bucket. Said another way, we're obviously not going to play the deep cuts here. No worries. The insights that John lays out are fascinating and give an insider's look into what's going on at these really powerful institutions. By the way, when I say powerful institutions, I just was looking at some stats the other day. Something like 50% of all prescriptions these days run through IDNs. That was in 2020. And also in 2020, aggregate IDN market size was a trillion dollars. And by 2027, their anticipated combined revenues may exceed two trillion. That's double. I know that was some quick math by me. You're welcome. We'll see, though, what the recent executive order yields the one to look into the market power that some of these consolidated IDNs wield. Regardless of who you are, it is tough to deny the mountain of evidence showing that IDN, health system consolidation, considerably jacks up prices that patients, employers, and taxpayers in any geography where consolidated IDNs, otherwise known as monopolies, have destroyed all competition. Probably the most striking takeaway I had from this conversation was how much there is to read between the lines. At the end of the day, IDNs are and are run like businesses. And regardless of whether they have a nonprofit on the door or not, that is still true. Before I get into this, let me just clearly say that my heart goes out to the frontline workers, doctors, nurses, everybody else, and all they have done and continue to do for us. And I mean that with three underlines. While I really admire and support some of the rural and urban truly safety net hospitals who are trying to cobble together positive net revenue against all odds, I am far less sympathetic to some of the huge institutions who will engineer an, it's good for patients, honestly, cover story for any and all endeavors, which all seem to have one thing in common, their profitability. Like, You know, nobody mentioned 340B revenue opportunities or how much money there is in specialty pharmacy when explaining the rationale for standing up specialty pharmacies within some health systems walls. Maybe it goes without saying. Here's my conversation with John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and host of the Healthcare Rounds podcast, by the way. You should check that out. John Marchica, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Let me ask you this. If we're thinking about the report... And the number of individuals that you spoke with and then the research that was done, 
this obviously isn't your first year at the rodeo. You've talked to people for years, but in fact, last year was the first time that you talked to people in the middle of COVID. What were the surprising findings that you're like, oh, didn't expect that? Sure, sure. So top three, I'd say health systems are back to business, or at least ready to get back to business, really focused on growth. Second, the focus on social determinants of health continues to increase. And third, I guess the industry engagement piece of this, they're pretty happy that they're engaging on Zoom and email. But at the same time, that it looks like that more than half say that they expect face-to-face meetings to resume within six months. So I guess those top three areas. And that last one, when you say industry, that's shorthand for people who are trying to sell things to IDNs. So, <laughs> you know, like you've got, obviously, IDNs buy lots of stuff. They buy pharmaceutical products, they buy medical device products, they right. meet with digital health vendors of all stripes. So if you're trying to sell something to an IDN, you're doing it over Zoom right now. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, the What we hear a lot of is that unless it's like mission critical, that they're not letting any vendors into the building. And I guess slightly that's changing. So if it's a software person that needs to come in and fix their Epic installation, then yeah, put on a mask and come in. If you're trying to sell me this new medical device, I don't think so. So let's go to the top of the list. You had said that one of the things that's priority for integrated delivery networks, health systems at this time, these provider organizations, is that they want to get back to work on the quick. Is this just like go back to our existing business lines, service lines, and try to accelerate them? Or like, what does the strategy look like there? One thing too that I, I want to highlight again is that there there's kind of two components of this study. One is having these in-depth interviews, typically 20, 25 people, and then the online survey that's kind of split between pharmacy and medical leadership. I think this time we had something like 109. When I'm having the one-to-one interviews, the way that I ask the question is, let's talk about your strategic priorities over the, you know, let's say the next 18 months. But I'm also curious to know how COVID-19 has affected those priorities. And virtually every person said, that the best laid plans, what they had expected in January of last year, that everything got totally derailed by COVID. And that right now, as in early April, is the first time that they've been able to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what was important before? Are those things still important? And, and so you have these systems kind of out of the planning cycle, right? But post-COVID or as things started to relax, Let's see what our priorities really are. And so number one is restoring their balance sheet, right? And that's getting their service lines up to at least where they were before, but trying to grow them wherever possible. Getting their elective procedures, increasing those. Obviously, elective, that's in quotes, like a lot of these procedures, or maybe they're not emergency, but then I would call them elective. Three is finding other opportunities for growth. So it might be acquiring physician practices. It might be adding different sites of care. And certainly right now, or as they would say, you know, in the earlier part of the year, even still now, where they can, getting their service areas vaccinated. 
So just to restate what you just said, obviously 2020 was more of a reactive year strategically. Everybody had their strategic plan January of 2020, pretty much threw it out for the rest of the year. But it sounds like now people are, you know, getting back on top of their skis and have had the opportunity to sit down and, and plot out the rest of 2021. And the three things that you're you're talking about are kind of, the, it sounds like, the things that are getting written on the whiteboard. How do we get our elective procedures, our revenue generating procedures? procedures back up to where they were before at those levels, figuring out how to find maybe new opportunities for growth, as as you just said, including new sites of care, I'm assuming like ambulatory surgical centers. And then I'm assuming that they're trying to get everybody vaccinated everywhere. Maybe even patients are asking for vaccinated healthcare professionals, but making assumptions here, you've done the study. So did I restate that well? A couple of things that, that I would add to that. So when we talk about ASCs, then definitely yes. But also we've been hearing a lot about infusion centers, increasing the number of infusion centers. And I mentioned acquisitions. Another thing is to think about that was kind of a recent common theme is when you look at their service line, what their priorities are, that includes primary care oncology, cardiovascular and orthopedics. But I want to pause on primary care there because a number of people, a significant number of people were telling me that there's this kind of renewed interest in primary care. And as I've been reviewing this with our, our clients, their partners on this study, people always pause and say, well, wait a minute, what, what do you mean they're focused on primary care? And I think it's a couple of things. I think that COVID really kind of highlighted potentially deficiencies that they had in primary care and that a lot of lessons were learned, especially through telemedicine and virtual care. That's the top thing that comes to mind. But also, as you might imagine, it's a referral network for them, right? So whether they're, it's a, an owned relationship or a contracted relationship, those primary care docs are the ones that are feeding into the specialists. Yeah, many studies show that the average PCP is worth half a million dollars a year in downstream referrals. So wow. Yeah. You just said the growth areas could be infusion centers. You also mentioned acquisitions, and that's obviously been a trend that's been going on for 10 years, that health systems are using acquisitions to, you know, obviously grow their balance sheet, but also to create market power. And then the service lines, relative to infusion centers, how they do during COVID. You know, like there was a lot of talk relative to patients, you know, there was a fear that patients would not come in for their infusions, maybe talk about trying to prescribe oral oncologics, oral meds instead, because there are some now available. How'd that shake out? Excellent question. So we hypothesized that, you know, let's say certain oncologics we, where there's an oral or an infused alternative, we believe that there might be some switching going on, that they would be more inclined to go the oral route so that they didn't have to come into the infusion center. And we've asked the question now for, well, I guess close to a year. And the answer is no there really hasn't been that kind of switching happening that we thought might happen. So in other words, patients are still showing up in the infusion center that even if offered an oral oncologic drug, they're like, no, 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 like I want, I'm going to come in. This is my sense. They're not going to switch just while someone is like midstream in the middle of their treatment, that maybe for a new patient, if they think that it's the right option for that patient, they might offer it. But yeah, I mean, there wasn't really a decline. Although I will say 
separately when we ask them about home infusion services, we've seen slightly over time an increase in home infusion services. Now, those may not be the same products that they're infusing in the centers, but now we're getting above my pay grade. I'm not a pharmacist. You would think that COVID may have had an impact on prescribing patterns, that doctors may have been a little bit less inclined and maybe patients a little bit less inclined to go for a therapy that required them to walk on site into a hospital that had a wing of COVID patients someplace, especially while they had cancer too. So obviously are immunocompromised at some level. But what we've, what basically you're articulating here is that hypothesis didn't shake out, that, that patients and doctors were just as willing to prescribe drugs that required patients to come into the hospital and then patients were following directions. The infusions didn't necessarily take any sort of dive relative to numbers and revenue that may have been anticipated. That, that didn't happen. And then you also have to take into account, Stacey, that a lot of these places have, you know, infusion centers that are not directly in the hospital. So there may be some perception of that it's okay. And by the way, I don't know how many times I'd be interviewing somebody talking about how patients are nervous about accessing care in some way or another. Invariably, they would say, you know, hey, the, the safest place in the world is here in this hospital. We've got this hospital locked down. Like, it's a lot safer here than it is in a grocery store. Common comment. Yeah, although, you know, everybody has been talking about how screening, you know, preventative screenings, routine screenings are way down. It seems like maybe once someone was diagnosed with cancer, they're following their treatment. You know, obviously there's non-adherence, but from what you're saying, it doesn't sound like there was any significant trend line disparities from prior years once someone was embarking on their treatment, but maybe there are fewer patients kind of like who got screened, therefore got into the initiated therapy. Maybe that's a conclusion? Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, the patients who eventually got screened were farther along than had they been screened earlier. I think screenings have, at this point have, have come back. But certainly when we go back to like the April, May of last year, even through the end of the year, I would say no doubt screenings were down. And when you think about the the sicker patients, it's not just in cancer, people not getting screened and being diagnosed. It's in, in other areas as well, not going in for their regular checkups and making sure their blood pressure medication is working well, or diabetics or a whole host of other issues that where people weren't being treated. So I think we're largely out of the woods for, for that for now. Relative to the way that patients are being treated, like obviously there was a surge of telemedicine. Now it's kind of shaking out to be like 10, 15%, for example, of of visits moving forward. I think I saw a, a stat the other day. What do you think changes in the way that medicine has been practiced in these health systems? Which of them do you feel like are permanent? By the way, the number that we report is about 20% of primary care visits, and the specialty visits are down around that 10%, 10, 12%, with the exception of behavioral health that is north of 40%. That's in telehealth. In telehealth, yeah. Interesting. Wow. People say the same thing. Telemedicine's here to say it. But then when you press them on it, okay, telemedicine's here to say, I got it. What does that really mean? And that's where I think that you know, people make an assumption like it's kind of like home health care, remote monitoring, things like if we're going to be progressing in the way that we deliver health care, these are all things that are going to be important. But I don't know that there's necessarily a roadmap that people have built yet that says this is 
This is how we're going to be using telemedicine going forward. I mean, you got to remember, there are exceptions to this rule, but many of these systems didn't really have a program in place. And so it was like, oh, do we FaceTime? Do we Zoom? <laughs> you know, like they didn't really have any, any system. Or maybe it was like half of 1% of visits for very specific rural patients, let's say. So it's taken some time to get them to the point where, you know, it's in, it's, you know, let's say it's maybe an Epic product and it's integrated into the EHR. And so it's more of a staple now, but I don't know that I have like the best answer because I don't know that IDNs by and large or health systems by and large have the answer unless they already had a robust telemedicine program in place prior to COVID. They're kind of not preparing for future of telehealth. What's the conclusion that you might draw? I mean, are they moving? They're like, okay, well, we got to get serious about this. We can't use FaceTime forever. We got to stand up something for reals. I don't know that I know the answer to that. My sense is in talking, it's kind of like in talking to people about this issue, which it's it's a staple of, of our interview guide, you'll hear, yes, we had to stand this up. Yes, at one point it was 40, 50% of, of visits. Now it's back down to 20%. We know it's here to stay. I'm, I'm just, I'm generalizing. There are exceptions, but I'm generalizing. I, I don't hear a strategy in place. It's like it's inevitable, but I don't hear a strategy of, okay, well, how are we going to move move this forward and integrate it? Hmm. Interesting, especially because there's obviously new entrants into the space that very much have a uh, virtual care slash telehealth strategy. So it's interesting to hear that the, you know, I'm going to say more traditional health system players are not articulating one that could wind up being a strategic gap. One thing to keep in mind, and this is important, when we first, you know, early on, CMS said that they were going to reimburse at parity, but now when we're asking the question around reimbursement rates, they're saying by and large that, that reimbursement rates reimbursement rates are declining across payers. And so, in fact, oh, I wish I had the statistic in mind. We asked a really specific question last time, so back in October, around like what percentage of reimbursement would it cause you to move away from telemedicine? And I want to say it was something like 60%, meaning 60% of the reimbursement. But that's a powerful negative motivator. You know, if you're not getting paid, then regardless of whether you think that it's convenient or important, and they're going to move away from that, it. Right? For sure. Absolutely. And and if we're talking about a, a strictly fee-for-service reimbursement model, then there's that. If you're talking about a model that it's very consumer-driven, and if you have patients you know, firing physicians that aren't using telehealth, there's that. If consumer experience is significantly diminished because now everybody's pretty, like especially for a medication refill, like you're going to ask a patient to drive across town and <laughs> sit in the parking lot and the waiting room and all kinds of stuff to get a refill, you know, so okay. I could definitely see that from a financial standpoint, there is a short-term issue here, but from a long-term strategic perspective, especially again, given the new entrants in the marketplace that are, you know, just 
diving headfirst into the virtual market, I could definitely see that there'd be a strategic gap for any institution that was thinking that if they couldn't figure out how to do a virtual visit and make money at 60% reimbursement, I, you know, I'm not sure. I guess there's pros and cons there, right, that, that these systems are going to have to certainly weigh. Well, let me just re- respond to that. That's interesting the way that you phrase that because, you know, initially my thought was to blame the payers, right, and to say, look, you're give, if you're, a visit is a visit. And regardless of where that patient is, you know, the doctor or the nurse practitioner is spending time with that patient. And so why would you reimburse at a lower rate if the quality is still there? But at the same time, to your point, they should be able to figure out a way by being more efficient because telemedicine, you'd argue, is virtual medicine is by its nature more efficient. You can see more people in a shorter period of time. Then they should be able to figure out how to make money because I agree with you. If those facilities cost what the facility fees would lead us to believe they cost, think how much money can be saved. Have you had a televisit? Have you had one? I did. And, you know, they're like five minute visits. You know what I mean? Like legit five minutes. But if I can tell you that if I was in that doctor's office, I would have dragged it out to 20 because I spent three hours getting there. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah, I've had a couple. They're awesome. It's a much better experience than having to go sit in a waiting room somewhere. Yeah. We'll see how that shakes out. So let's talk about social determinants of health. And and you have seen an increasing interest from your health system interviewees with concern about, about health disparities. What are you hearing and what are the action items that these health systems are taking? Many of these health systems have always kind of focused on health disparities, social determinants, there are some standout examples. I remember the, the, the Kaiser Initiative for the homeless and then Montefiore and, and some areas in the Bronx installing air conditioners in patients' homes, patients who had asthma. So things like, things like that. And when you ask about social determinants, very often people will, will give that answer and say, well, we've always focused on certain populations where there's more need, but now we seem to be making more of an effort. And, you know, some of the early data that was coming out around COVID showed that, you know, black and brown people and poorer people were having worse outcomes. They were dying at higher rates. They're hospitalized at higher rates. And so I think just if not only because of that, that there was more of a focus on these patient populations. I mean, we've noticed since the May study last year, an increase every time that say that they're concerned about health disparities. I think something like three and four, 75% of respondents in the online survey said they stepped up their efforts and focused on social determinants of health. I mentioned COVID as being a driver. What are you seeing with some of some of the people that you're interacting? Are you hearing the same kinds of things about being concerned about social determinants and including some of that in the medical record, things like that. Oh, the tables are turning here, I see. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just curious. It's an important topic, so. Yeah, I do think that it is an important topic. And and I feel like there's probably the non-cynical and then the very cynical way to look at it. The non-cynical way to look at it is that, yeah, there's more data than ever that's coming out that is really compelling. And it's a stark light that's been shown on just the nature and the extremity of the ways that our health system fails certain patient populations. 
And I think that anybody who went into medicine for the right reason would have to probably sit back in their chair and contemplate seriously how to improve based on the information that is is certainly in, in stark focus right now. On the other hand, there's probably a financial, there's a business case here from both an FFS standpoint as well as a value standpoint. From a value-based care standpoint, if anybody's assuming downstream risk, then keeping that patient out of the hospital certainly has its benefits. But there's an also an interesting business case for even fee-for-service because if you start thinking about the nature of somebody who might need an air conditioner in New York City, which is where Montefiore is, you know, otherwise they're going to have an acute asthma exacerbation. Probably they have Medicaid, which doesn't, as everyone knows, reimburse particularly well. So one of the hypotheses, and I'm just kind of repeating something that I heard, but, you know, one of the things is, is that if you only have so many beds, and I'm not talking about Montefiore right now, I'm just talking about any like urban uh, hospital, right? If you only have so many beds and one of them is being taken up by a Medicaid patient, then you don't have room for someone with a commercial insurance. So it actually... I mean, like I said, this is ridiculously cynical, but, you know, it's it's word on the street, right? That there's a bunch of different reasons why you want to make sure that you're dealing effectively, maybe, with social determinants of health. And, and there's both the just it's the right thing to do, but then also if you're trying to engineer a business case, you can. I also think, so flipping back to the non-cynical side of things, there are quite a few truly religious mission-driven organizations that believe that it's part of their charter to be caring for the underinsured or caring for certain patient populations that, you know, it's, it's that they, they feel like it's just the right thing to do. Like my wife used to work for Dignity and she was shocked at like how much their mission just was pervasive throughout the culture, throughout the organization, the way they talked about patients, the way they talked about each other, the way that they engaged with each other. And so so there's that positive side of things. Although I do think that there's a lot to what you say about that Medicaid bed, <laughs> or that person on Medicaid using up a bed that could be used by someone who has better insurance $300 air conditioner now sounds like a, a pretty good idea. I will recall one conversation that I had actually on my podcast a couple of years ago talking about social determinants. And I asked the question, do you think that social determinants, that these kinds of issues should be recorded in the medical record? And he was like, absolutely not. I don't want to have access to information or be gathering information that I have no control over fixing. We're doctors, we solve problems, we fix things. If I can't deal with this person's food insecurities, then it's almost like, and I'd like he's putting his head in the sand, but why am I putting it in the medical record? If, if there isn't anything that I can do about it or that any for anyone from our organization can do about it. So just a side note. Anyone who's, who would say something like that obviously doesn't participate in a team-based, they don't have a team-based care team. Right. Because that information would certainly be of interest to somebody that is on the, the care team. That's why you want to have permission-based technology, right, where certain information is surfaced to the right person. Because obviously, if you're the social worker, then some clinical lab value is probably not of super interest to you. So the technology should really ensure that the right people are getting the right information. That's, you know, 
why it costs however many million to install Epic. You want to get that stuff right. Let's move on here. The thing that I do want to ask you is about specialty pharmacy, which is also an important growth area for owned specialty pharmacies, you know, within these IDNs. What are you hearing relative to health system plans with their specialty pharmacy groups? I'll make a couple of comments. Those that have owned relationships, contracted, but owned relationships with their specialty pharmacy are all about growth. And that's been true for you know, prior to COVID. And it's for a couple of different reasons. One, of course, it's a big revenue generator. But two, every pharmacy director that I've talked to in this area says the same thing, that they provide, they believe they provide much better patient care than if that patient were to, you know, go somewhere else to some big box specialty pharmacy or some PBMs out there. So the focus on growth has always been there. And for those two primary reasons, When we asked in this latest round, like what are their top priorities, patient adherence jumped the line this time over cost control. And I know you're going to ask me why. In an online survey, we didn't have a follow-up, so I'm not exactly sure why that is. (laughs) Well, you could hypothesize that if you're trying to grow your specialty pharmacy, then having adherent patients is a way to do that. Sure, sure. And the other thing is that, that when we asked them about their threats, there is always concern about reimbursement and whether they're getting reimbursed at the right level. Do you have any insight relative to why the health systems are thinking that their in-house specialty pharmacies are so superior to outside specialty pharmacies? I think it's a, a culture of really focusing on the patient and really priding themselves on that. That's just something that seems to come through in, in interviews that we pride ourselves in providing this level of care. The other thing, probably more importantly, is that they have more information on that patient They have the full medical record, everything related to that patient. When they walk out the door to go somewhere else, well, maybe they don't have the same level of information. So they're going to be most knowledgeable about that patient and therefore can provide the best care. And I could certainly see that there might be an interest in specialty pharmacies as some of these, you know, for example, really expensive oral oncologics start to become more of a larger percentage of the treatment for cancer patients as a way, obviously with pie and bill, infusion centers are a revenue generator for these health systems. If someone is prescribed an oral oncologic, then you lose that revenue stream unless you have an in-house specialty pharmacy. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about Darwin first, and then I'll ask you about your podcast next, my friend. Sure. So Darwin Research Group, focuses on studying really integrated delivery systems. We have this this engagement study is that we've been talking about. Also, we kind of specializing specialize in profiling large organizations. So that's us. If you want to learn more about this study, certainly you can get some general information on our website, darwinresearch.com. But if anybody would like to take a look at an executive summary or just wants to reach out to me, my email address is jm for John Marchica, jm at darwinresearch.com. And where can people go to find more out about the podcast? I'm just going to put you on the spot and say, I hope that I can get you as a guest on Healthcare Rounds, which is my podcast. And that's available wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, you can find it on our website as well. It's a lot of fun. And you're in season five, correct? 
We are in season five. Yeah. And uh, the theme is really, I think it's pretty similar to yours, Stacey, is we're, we're looking to talk to people who are trying to influence at least one leg of the quadruple aim. John Martika, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thanks for having me, Stacey. I really enjoy talking to you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.